So can I invite you to turn to Psalm 8? If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 450. 450, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the world. I want you to imagine that one morning the post arrives and an envelope pops through the letterbox and on it is something that looks like a royal insignia. And you quickly tear open the envelope and there it is, an invitation to a royal garden party at Buckingham Palace. What an honour. Fast forward to the day in question. So there you are, you're on the lawn of the rear of Buckingham Palace, you're mingling there with the other guests, and a hush then descends over the crowd. And a hush descends as King Charles appears with Queen Camilla, and they walk through and they begin talking to the guests. Prince Charles, King Charles, I should say, comes to you, comes up to you as you're trying to be slightly inconspicuous and talks to you. How do you respond to that? Well, of course, I hope that the answer is with enormous respect. You wait for him to speak and you respond carefully and extremely politely. So let's pull back a moment from that scene and let me ask this question. How do you behave towards God? Is it with the awe and wonderment due to his name or are we often forgetful, disrespectful and may just regard God as a bigger version of us? I think that's often a temptation for us to do. Well, Psalm 8 puts us right straight away and throughout that psalm we get a very clear message. First verse, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you'll notice here the emphasis on God's name. Now, to us, naming a newborn child may reflect just a liking for a particular name. It may be a family name or something like that. But in the past, it wasn't always quite like that. For example, as you know, the Puritans often gave names to their children that reflected a particular biblical truth or virtue. Let me give you an example. Praise God, Barebones. Praise God was his Christian name. And he had a son, and he took it much further. His son was called Nicholas. If Jesus Christ had died for thee, thou hast been damned, Barebones. 
So that's what the Puritans got up to. But in the Bible, it's a bit like that as well, because the name of somebody had great significance, indicating often a spiritual truth or the character of the bearer in question. And above all, the names of God are highly significant. And we've got two words here right at the beginning of this psalm for Lord, O Lord, our Lord. And interestingly, they're not the same in Hebrew. To take them in reverse order, the second one means king or ruler. The first one with all capitals is a translation of the name Yahweh. Not a general name for God, but a personal name, the personal name of Israel's covenant God. And as you may know, it's built on the statement in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I am who I am. John Piper's very helpfully addressed this, and I'm going to, to read what he's written because I think it summarises it very succinctly. God named himself Yahweh, that is, the absolutely existing one, the one who simply is, who did not come into being and does not go out of being and never changes in his being because he is absolute being. He depends on nothing for his being and all else depends on him. And then John Piper continues, this name is majestic in all the earth. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Yahweh, the absolutely existing one in all the earth. There is no place in all the earth where God is not Yahweh, where he is not the absolute one. Everything, everywhere depends totally on him. He has absolutely no competitors anywhere. He is above all things everywhere. He sustains all things everywhere. He is greater and wiser and more beautiful and wonderful than anything else anywhere. O Yahweh, our Lord, our Master, our King, our Ruler, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's the main point of this psalm I'd like to suggest. And the aim is that we stand in awe of God and worship him. And in the remaining verses, what David, the author of this psalm, does is to give us at least three reasons why we should praise and adore our majestic God. We'll see later on how these reasons, as it were, progress through the psalm, but let's look at them in turn. Firstly, we should adore the Lord our God because of the paradox of his power. Because of the paradox of his power. So look again at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, I'm sure you will know what a paradox is, but let me just remind you. It's an apparent contradiction. And here are some obvious examples. Less is more. In marriage, two people become one, yet remain two. To achieve peace, we must wage war. I am a nobody. I'm sure you recognise that type of statement. But here in this passage, we've got a big paradox, a big apparent contradiction. 
Let me demonstrate it. And we're back to King Charles again to do this. I don't know whether you watch this. Um, Juliet and I like watching current affairs. And we watch the Privy Council proclaiming King Charles as king. And what happened there? Who was it who actually raised their voices and say, God save the king? Well, it was the great and the good. It was, I think we counted them, six former prime ministers and two former archbishops of Canterbury. And I guess that's what you'd expect, isn't it? It was not a group of babies and preschool children. If it had been so, it would have been a paradox. And yet that's exactly what we have in these verses. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So on the one hand, we have God's glory above the heavens. On the other, we have that glory being declared in praise by babies and infants. That surely is deeply paradoxical. So the question is, what point is being made here? Let's turn to another biblical passage. Don't bother to look it up, but let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 21, verses 14 to 16. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the chief priests were indignant, and they said to Jesus, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never heard read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So here is Jesus in the temple following his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and just before his arrest and crucifixion. And another author, um, Del Ralph Davis, describes this very well in terms of what on earth is going on here. He talks about the lethal punch that praise packs. Praise of God is highly powerful even if or especially when it comes from sources that we would consider weak. He says there is a strange wallop in the praises of God's people that silences God's enemies. Let me just refer very briefly to another example in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He expresses similar thoughts in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read this to you. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I declared to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." So do you get the whole idea here in this psalm and uh, in Matthew and in uh, 1 Corinthians? The whole focus is on God's power and not on the eloquence of man or the lack of it. So firstly, we've just seen there's the paradox of, of God's power. That's the reason why we should praise and adore him. And let's move on to verses 3 and verse 4. We should adore and praise God because of the strangeness of his care. You might say the mystery 
of his care. That would be another way of putting it. Let me read three and four. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and a son of man that you care for him? Now, I'm not a scientist, but I'm told that on a clear night, the psalmist David could probably have seen between 2,000 and 3,000 stars. I'm also told that if he had a good pair of binoculars, he could probably have seen up to 100,000 stars. I'm also told, and I take this at face value that it's true, that if you imagine the Milky Way galaxy being the equivalent size of North America, then our solar system would fit into a coffee cup. That is an extraordinary thought, isn't it? And that the Milky Way is one of perhaps a hundred billion such galaxies in the universe. Had he known this, David would surely have been even more amazed, and yet his point here is entirely undiminished. If God's creative power is so immense beyond human imagining, why should God pay us a moment's thought? What is man that God is mindful of him? A tiny speck of dust, as it were, and yet much more than that, God cares for humankind. So when David says, what is man? He's not really asking a question, but making an exclamation. When he says, what is man? He's really saying, what a God, what a God. He's not posing a mental teaser, but engaging in unrestrained praise. So as we look on in the psalm, the nature of God's care is explained and developed. And we're moving here to our third point, from praising God, from the strangeness of his care, the mystery of his care, to praising and adoring God for the clearness of his revelation, the clearness of his uh, revelation. Now, as you probably know, the word revelation means God making known of himself and of his will to humankind in a way which otherwise we could not ourselves discover. It is God speaking to us so that we both know what he is like and come to know him for ourselves. So verses five to eight again. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Do those words remind you of anything? I'm sure they do. They amount to a poetic description, poetic summary of the revelation of God's creative work, of God making himself known in the first chapters of Genesis. So just to make the point, let me read Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So before we move on, it's only appropriate, isn't it, that we just pause just for a moment in adoration and awe of what our wonderful God is like. It's beyond comprehension. It's amazing, isn't it? So let's put that just for one moment to one side and look at human history. How has human history got meaning? Well, basically, it's a pathetic litany of attempts to create meaning or even to deny it. I'm just going to give you three examples. So look at ancient ancient paganism. That's probably what was mainly going on, say, in Babylon, time of Old Testament and so on. So what would their response have been, rather than the wonderful words we've been looking at? It would be something like this. When I look at the heavens, the moon and the stars, I fall down and worship them, for I believe they represent the powers of the universe. They are unpredictable and can change their mood without warning. Yet I am caught in their grip, for they control my fate. So what is man? Man is little more than a plaything of the capricious gods. Or think of modern nihilism. Um, I'm sure you know what nihilism means. Nihil is the Latin Latin word for nothing. So what would their view be? Something like this. What is man in the vastness of such a universe? He is nothing. To put it succinctly, only a piece of lukewarm rubbish that you'd find in your waste bin on a hot summer's day. Just to give you an example of that, there's an extraordinary play, I've never seen it, uh, written by a guy called Samuel Beckett, who you might have heard of. It's called Breath, and apparently it lasts only 35 seconds long. It has no human actors, just a pile of rubbish set on stage. The light at first is very dim, and it gets somewhat brighter, but never very bright, and then becomes dim again. There are no words, only a recorded cry at the beginning, and then breath, breathing in and then out again, followed by another recorded cry, and at the end of the play, that's it, after 35 seconds. What is man? Man is rubbish and nothing more. So one more example, and this is probably more relevant to what, as it were, the mood music is in society at the moment, the mood music of modern humanism. Here's a quote from something called Humanist Manifesto 2. And it starts by criticising what we would call traditional theism, that's belief in God. Traditional theism, especially faith in the prayer-hearing God, who is assumed to love and care for persons, to hear and understand their prayers, and to be able to do something about them, this is an unproven and outmoded faith. We can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. What is man? Man is on his own, to which we could probably add, but of course man can create his own personal truth to help him along. So how tragically different 
from the words of Psalm 8. So let's, after that slightly depressing foray, let's go back to Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with honour and glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet. However, at this point we might hesitate and say, are these words really true? Psalm 8 seems to describe the dignity and destiny of man in God's original purpose. Man was intended to be a creature of supreme favour as God was mindful of him and cared for him. He was also intended to be a creature of special privilege. But that is not what we see today, is it? We've just seen from that quote from the humanist, man remains in the image of God. But that image was marred by the fall and continues to be severely marred by sin. We can now see man as despising God, despising his favour, abusing his privileges, ignoring his dignity, and through sin, limited in his dominion. Man is certainly not what he should be. So the question is, of course, how does that fit with the confident declarations of Psalm 8. So, for example, how would the Old Testament believer have responded and applied this message? Let's start there. So let's look again, just very briefly, at those words. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist, David, is astonished that God should be mindful of him and care for him. Here is God's compassionate grace, clearly revealed despite humankind's utter failures. And in the Bible, of course, as you may know, whenever God is mindful, whenever God remembers, it also implies not just a thought, but also clear action. The clear action here of care. So the Old Testament believer could marvel at God's compassionate concern for him. And so should we today. But for us, of course, there is much, much more as we see God's care in wonderful action in the person of the Lord Jesus. So let me read now from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 following. And you may recognize one or two words coming through here. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who is for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So I'm sure you recognised the quotation from Psalm 8 in that passage from the book of Hebrews. With the aid of Psalm 8, the writer there wants to emphasise 
not only that Jesus has entered, entered fully into our humanity, but more especially that he is the ideal man, man as God really intended him to be. The phrase, but we see him, that is Jesus, in verse 9, brings the quotation from the psalm to a dramatic climax. Man is certainly not remotely like the ideal humanity portrayed by the psalmist. But Jesus has come into the world to show us what man is like in God's original purpose and also what man can be through Christ's effective work. Now, without getting too technical, like many psalms, Psalm 8 has a special pattern running through it. I'm sure you may have noticed that the first verse and the last verse are the same. And in the same part of verse 1 and verse 2, parallel verses 6 to 8. Let me explain. The last part of verse 1 and verse 2 speak of the glory of the great king. Verses 6 to 8 speak of humankind's glory as ruler. And do you notice there the words, you have put all things under his feet, in verse 6? Another reference in the New Testament that follows this through. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 27. That picks up this verse from Psalm 8 as it looks to the resurrection of the dead at the end of time and describes all things being placed under the feet of the risen Christ. That is the perfect God-man. And amazingly, again, and it keeps getting more amazing as we go through this, let me take you to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. He that is Christ has made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The wonderful truth is that one day, redeemed mankind will rule with the risen and glorified Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. So can you see here the tremendous scope of Psalm 8 as it takes us from God's creative acts in Genesis, in verse 6 to 8, to a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth to come. So just to go back to what we've looked at. We've looked at the main point of the psalm being that we should stand in awe and worship our wonderful God. And we looked at three particular reasons why we should do this, why we should praise and honour him. We looked at the paradox of his power, the strangeness of his care, and the clearness of his revelation. And as we've seen, these were wonderful thoughts for the believer in the Old Testament, but they are much, much more wonderful to us this morning. So what I want to do uh, in closing in prayer is to actually read the psalm again as a prayer, and let's just reflect on it as I do so. So let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.